Well, good morning. All right, I don't have to say it twice. Y'all already answered. I appreciate that. Well, welcome to 116 Bible Church. Please forgive me for looking like a Backstreet Boy up here. Uh, trying out something new to see if it cuts down on the rustle and the feedback. Um, welcome to 116 Bible Church. I'm Sean. I'm the associate pastor here, and we are very happy to have you with us here today. Um, let's go ahead. Um, we are going to be picking up um, on our series through Romans. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and flip to Romans chapter 10. We'll be picking up in verse 14. That's Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. While you're flipping there, let's do uh, my favorite part of the sermon, and that is getting you caught up to where, we, where we've been so far, so we know how we got to where we are. Uh, we're in the book of Romans, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, which is a congregation comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And uh, he spends a great deal of time talking about the uh, disadvantages of, of being having been a Jew or having come from a Gentile background. Um, Jews having been raised with the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Gentiles, though not having the scriptures, uh, being grafted in. And then uh, he spends a good deal of time um, talking, uh, spills a lot of ink talking about really trying to get them to the gospel because this is a church he's never been to before, a congregation. He knows very few, likely, if any, people there. So he wants to make sure this congregation knows the biblical Jesus. So he spends a great deal of time giving them the gospel. Um, and then he even uh, transitions into um, the process of salvation um, and even the prophesied rejection of Jesus by his own people, by the Jewish people. And we see um, really that leading to um, closing out ver uh, chapter 9, um, but uh, opening chapter 10 with him really expounding upon that even though Israel has the Old Testament scriptures, they're still in desperate need of the gospel. And he even ends the previous section um, by saying that this need for the gospel is universal. It doesn't just apply to Jews or Gentiles, but it applies to all people everywhere. Every person, every type of person needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is no exception. And he even uh, finishes the last section with um, what that looks like. It's believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, done in the power of of the Holy Spirit himself. And he says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is great and wonderful news. And he goes on to flesh that out more in the passage we'll be covering today. So if you've uh, found it, then it's Roman, again, Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. I ask if you are able that you would stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Again, that's Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. And the word of God says, How then shall we call on him, shall they call on him, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach 
unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you, God, knowing that apart from your grace, there is no salvation. Lord, we have just opened your word to read your words that you have recorded and preserved and even had translated for your people. Lord, that we would come to know you better, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and be transformed in our thinking by your Spirit. Grant us, grant us your vision, Lord. May we see what it is you have for your people in your word. And Lord, today glorify yourself. These people don't need me. They need you. I need you. Show us Jesus. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So show us Jesus. In his name we pray all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. Alright, so we already did the background, getting us caught up to today's passage. So let's go ahead and dive right on in. Beginning in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? What is Paul doing here? He's showing really in reverse order what saving faith takes. The process that leads up to saving faith. Even in verse 15, he talks about preachers being sent. And the idea here behind this word is not just people going out and preaching the gospel, but really this is a type of ascending in, in conjunction with a commissioning. Unless preachers be commissioned and sent out into the world, how are, how are the nations to hear? Unless preachers are sent, 
they won't. God has not just ordained salvation, church. He's ordained the process by which people are saved. And this process is laid out here, and this process includes his people going out into the world and carrying with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will they hear without a preacher? Church, we have the saving message of Jesus Christ. We have the only thing that can bring salvation to anyone, anywhere. We can't hoard it for ourselves. We can't keep it within these four walls like a secret. We have to carry it with us from this place out into the world. And we have to carry it boldly, proclaim it clearly, and live it loudly. There's nothing else we can do. There's there's no other hope. It's not the gospel or something else. It's not the gospel or obeying the law. It's not the gospel or some third thing. It's the gospel. That's it. And right here, Paul is using a series of rhetorical questions to really drive home the point that without the gospel, we are lost. And we are headed for a place that the Bible calls hell. What else can we do? But obey our master in his final words to his disciples in the Great Commission and go out into the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Paul here is saying, How then shall they call it on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? This isn't some office that he's describing. This is the responsibility, the charge to the church as a whole to go out and to preach the gospel. He says even on verse even in verse 15 and how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. Your translation might leave out the part about the gospel of peace. That's okay. It's saying the same thing here. What he's saying is how beautiful are the feet who carry the messenger who bears the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. He's talking about feet. I'm going to be honest with you people. I don't like feet. I think feet are gross. I, I, it, 
No, not interested in feet. But what what is Paul and what is God through Paul saying here? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. And you got to remember, this is at a time when footwear was basically sandals. And transportation was basically walking. And roads, universally, were dirty. So to get anywhere, the average person walked. And they walked for as long as they had to, to get where they were going. And in the process, their feet became dusty and grimy and filthy. And what is God saying here? That the feet of those who bring the gospel, though they walk everywhere they go, though they be covered in dust and dirt and grime, those feet, because they carry the message of Jesus Christ are beautiful. Amen. He's talking about your feet, Christian. He's talking about your feet, brothers and sisters. He's saying your feet are beautiful. And they are beautiful because they carry with them the message of Jesus Christ. The gospel. In fact, this word here that uh, that your your Bible has um, your Bible probably has how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. That's probably what your your translation has. But that translation, even that translation, it's talking about good news. And what is one word that sums up? Good news. That word is gospel. In the Greek, it's euangelion, or when we transliterate it, it sometimes comes over as evangelion or evangel. How beautiful are the feet of the evangelist? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news because they have been charged? with the responsibility, with the duty to preach the gospel, to do the work of an evangelist as Paul exhorts Timothy elsewhere. So let that be your encouragement today, Christian. Let that be, if you take anything from today's message, let it be that you have been charged with the responsibilities of the office of the evangelist to go out into the world and to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere. Not just to Jews, not just to Gentiles, not just to people you like, not just to people you can tolerate being around, not just to people who don't make you cringe, but to everybody. Carry the gospel with you. Do the work of an evangelist. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed 
our report. What do we have here? We have here the Apostle Paul hearkening back to the Old Testament scriptures for the sake of his Jewish audience to show that it's been prophesied that not everybody who hears the gospel is going to receive the gospel. Not everybody who is within earshot of gospel proclamation is going to come to a saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not discouraging. Because with that comes the flip side. The assurance that there will be those who will be saved. Just because not everybody is eager to hear what we have to say about Jesus doesn't mean that God's word isn't accomplishing his purposes. It goes forth from his people into the lives through the ears of its hearers. And it does whatever God has ordained it to do. Whether that is to soften hearts or whether that's to harden hearts. Spurgeon once said, if the Bible told me that the elect all had a yellow stripe down their back, I, my job would be to go around lifting up shirts. But the Bible says, whosoever will may come. So my job is to preach the whosoever will gospel. And when whosoever hears it, they will come. That's our job. Thank the Lord that it's not results-oriented. Thank God that it doesn't depend on me to get decisions made. Not my job. Not my calling. Not in the description that he has given me. Biblical success is not results-oriented. It's measured in faithfulness to the message. So you go out and you preach the gospel and you preach it faithfully. You proclaim it boldly and loudly and clearly. And the Spirit does what the Spirit has ordained Himself to do. The Spirit will go forward and accompany the preaching of the gospel and turn those who are his to himself. And those who are not, he will pass over. And that's okay. Because our Lord sits in the heavens and he does all that pleases him. Rest in that knowledge. Rest in the knowledge that you don't have to go and try to fix the gospel to make people want to hear it. To get a to draw a bigger crowd. To make people feel like this is something they should do. It's not on you. That's the responsibility of the Spirit. Your responsibility. My responsibility is to preach that which we have received from the beginning. That which has been passed down to us from the apostles and the prophets. That which they have heard and have seen with their eyes and touched with their hands and proclaimed with their mouths. 
That is our responsibility. And the Spirit will do the rest. Excuse me. Lord, who has believed our report? Paul here references a passage from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, if you recall, was a prophet. He wasn't a prophet to the Gentiles. He was a prophet to the people of Israel. And here he is in a private moment with God saying, Lord, we have carried your message with us. But who has even bothered? Who cares? Nobody is turning to you, it seems. Christian, that's how it's going to be most days. Most days are not going to be like Peter preaching at Pentecost. It's not going to be you open your mouth and then 3,000 are saved right before your very eyes. That'd be wonderful. But that's not going to be most days. Most days you're going to come home and you're going to fall on your knees and you're going to cry out, God, Lord, what good did it do? Who cared? Who has believed our report? And it's in those moments, Christian, that Christ isn't just using you to get your word out to others. He is using his spirit to drill his word deeper into your very soul so that it resides so deeply, so truly and purely, that when those days come, you can give thanks to God for choosing to use you for another day. That you can give thanks to God for giving the world another day to receive the preaching of his gospel when he is well within his right to end it all at any moment. And as often and as much as he is offended, the fact that he hasn't is a, more than a testimony to his grace and his patience. So when those days come and you hit your knees and you wonder what good it's done, what your, what your obedience, even by his grace, has accomplished, you know that if for nothing else, it has. Your obedience, by grace through faith, has been used by God to make you more like Jesus. To conform you into his image, to bring you along the path of sanctification. When it seems nobody else is walking that path with you. Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Here Paul sums up everything in this chapter so far. Particularly regarding verses 14 through 16. 
this faith, this saving faith in Jesus Christ is only available through the word of God preached and received, proclaimed and heard. There's no other way. Not saying that God isn't able or capable to use other means. Nobody's saying that. What we're saying is he's made it clear that the means he has chosen to use are his people. His people going out and carrying with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and not just living it and never saying a word because if you're truly living it then you are preaching it. Then you are proclaiming it. Then you are telling it to those who are around you, who are within earshot. I'm not saying every single conversation has to be a clear-cut Roman road presentation of the gospel. I'm saying every conversation needs to point to Jesus. I'm saying every conversation needs to show your own inadequacy and Christ's sufficiency. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This whole idea of preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary, that's heresy. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Preach the gospel at all times. Use a megaphone when necessary. Get on top of your roof when necessary. Come up here and look like the sixth member of NSYNC when necessary. Preach the gospel at all times. Words are always necessary. Because faith comes by hearing. And not just simply physical hearing. It's that spiritual, soul-level hearing that can only be accomplished when the Spirit of God Himself carries the words of the Gospel into the heart of the person listening. But that only happens when there is physical hearing taking place. You want to reach somebody's soul ears, the ears of their very spirit, you're going to have to use the words of your mouth. And the Spirit of God will take the words to their soul if and when necessary. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But I say, this is Paul, but I say, have they not heard? Here we're seeing a subtle shift, whereas up to this point, Paul has been making it abundantly clear that he is talking about, because remember, even uh, in the previous section in verse 12, he says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. So up to this point in the passage, he's been talking about the Jew first, but also the Greek, or the Gentile, the non-Jewish person. What we have here is Paul, up to this point where he was talking about the Jew first, but also including the Gentile, now he's going to shift focus and talk most exclusively about the Jewish the Jewish person. 
I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. And then he quotes Isaiah again. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. I'm sorry, I believe that's actually Psalm, that's Psalm 19. He's quoting Psalm 19 here. And the psalm he's quoting is actually, this particular uh, verse from the psalm, is actually referencing general revelation, creation. He's talking about essentially the heavens declaring the glory of God and the works of his hands proclaiming him and his glory. And he says, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But he's applying this not just to the general revelation of God. He's applying this to the special revelation of the gospel itself. And the idea here isn't necessarily that the gospel has penetrated every corner of the globe. What he's saying here, the gospel has gone beyond the Jewish realm and into the realm of the Gentiles. So he's saying what? Yes, Israel has heard. Israel has heard the gospel. This, uh, the question of, have they not heard? No, they heard. They heard. And he's referencing Old Testament scriptures to show, not only have they heard since Jesus' coming, but they've been told since the beginning of his coming. It's in their very own scriptures that they have been told before. And it was in the life and ministry of Jesus and his apostles where they were told after. They've heard. They just didn't want to receive. Why? Because remember, in first century Israel, the notion of the Messiah was a military conqueror was a political figure coming down to essentially wipe out Roman rule and end it and and instate or install the Jewish people into the position of power. And because that's not how Christ came, they weren't willing to receive him. He came to his own and they rejected him. The very people through whom the Messiah was brought into this world by which he graced us with his presence were the chief among his rejectors. They were leading the charge against him. They were the very ones in Jerusalem screaming, crucify him. Declaring that they had no king but Caesar. When not just their king, but their God was staring them right in the face. They didn't want They heard. They just didn't like it. Verse 19, but I say, again, this is Paul, but I say, did Israel not know? Listen to this progression. 
They must not have heard. Paul says no. They heard. The scriptures prove that they heard. He says, well then maybe they didn't understand. Maybe they heard, but they just didn't get it. And here he quotes Deuteronomy. Where he says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. And if you flip back to Deuteronomy, you don't have to do it now. But if you flip back to Deuteronomy and you read that in context, it has to do with the people of Israel worshiping false gods. And essentially God says, okay, you want to worship non-gods? I'm going to bring a non-people, a non-nation. To provoke you to jealousy. And this non-nation of people that he's talking about, I will move you to anger by making them a nation. A nation who is ignorant of all of my promises that I've given to you. A nation who does not know of my scriptures of my words that you have received, Israel. But a nation whom I have shown favor upon nonetheless. So the problem isn't that they didn't hear. The problem isn't that Israel didn't understand. The problem is that they didn't care. It's that they didn't like it. It's that they hated God. These people whose very name means strives with God, struggles with God, wrestles with God. Israel wrestles with God. This people whose very name invokes the image of God. Heard and understood, but didn't like it. So they rejected him. How applicable is that today? Israel, yes, they rejected Christ. How many in the church, the physical church, who claim the name of Christ? who declare that they are marching under the banner of Christianity. How many actually hate God and reject Him? How often in your own daily walk do you go and instead of loving God and obeying Him, you instead reject his ways because you like your sin. Don't hear what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying this doesn't make you a Christian. I'm saying this makes you a work in sanctifying progress. Just like all of his children. I can't even count the number of times this past week I've chosen my sin over obedience. Truth be told, I really don't want to think about trying to count that. Not just because it's embarrassing, but because it's shameful. Christian, brother, sister, don't let shame and guilt be the end. Let it be, when necessary, the avenue you walk back to the throne of grace. Amen. Let it be that which brings you to your knees in humble adoration of our God and King. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. I get it. I do. I really do. And there's even that that stretch of time after you after you commit a sin. After you knowingly commit a sin. Where you feel too ashamed to pray. You feel too ashamed to open the word of God and seek his face. I get it. It's in those moments where the enemy and your flesh are trying to talk you out of your deep and complete and utter need for God. And so they will throw everything they can in your way to keep you from his presence. So in those moments where you're too ashamed to pray, you're too ashamed to open the Bible, those are the moments you need to run faster. Those are the moments where you need to rely on the Spirit carrying you to the presence of our Father and Savior to give you back your assurance and to use that moment not simply to wallow in your pity and your shame, but instead to grow in grace and mercy. And especially in holiness. And again, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. One more moment. Here we have Paul again quoting a passage of scripture that originally was talking about the nation of Israel. It was talking about the Jewish people. Here Paul was, I'm sorry, here Isaiah rather, was recording the words of God to his own people. A nation that had, for the most part, completely turned its back 
on God and his ways. And God was saying, I was found by those who didn't seek me. Talking about his own people. My own people didn't seek me and found me because I made them, I made myself manifest or revealed myself to them, even though they didn't ask. And Paul is taking that and he is applying it to non-Jewish people. I'm not sure if you're aware, but that's you. To those who did not grow up with the benefit of the scriptures and the word of God in the Old Testament. He was found by those who didn't have that because he revealed himself to those who didn't even know well enough to look for him. Your very own salvation, brother and sister, screams of the glory of God. One of the most beautiful things I ever learned was the day I realized that my salvation is not about me. I benefit, and that's wonderful, but it's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about the God who saved me. And I am a testimony to his grace by his salvation, by his saving of my soul. And that has nothing to do with me as an individual, as a person. I did nothing for that. But I reap all the benefits. Because it's not about me. It's about him. Your salvation, Christian, is not about you. It's about the God who saved you. And the God who saves you daily in sanctification. And the God who saves you daily by making you more like Jesus. And less like the person you were when he found you. Your salvation is about the God who will one day, not just metaphorically and forensically or legally, but also quite visibly and spiritually clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Your salvation is about Him and not about you. So be that testimony. Be that witness to his glory by carrying with you the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere you go. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This idea here of disobedience and contrariness is a people who contradict him. A people who speak out against him. And nowhere was that made more vivid than when they spoke out against our Savior. But all day long, 
he has his hands outstretched to his own people, to the people of Israel, inviting them to come, giving them that opportunity. But remember that opportunity is a double-edged sword. Because with that opportunity comes the possibility for salvation, but also the possibility of a heart hardened to the point of death. And from here, Paul's going to go on and show that Israel's rejection of the Savior isn't 100%. That there is a remnant. That he has kept for himself a group of people from ethnic Israel whom he will redeem by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul himself is a testimony to that. The apostles are a testimony to that. And let that be an encouragement to you that as you go from this place and you carry with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, no, not everybody's going to receive it. But the rejection is not going to be total. God has kept for himself a remnant who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And when you go out and you preach the gospel, and at the appointed time, they hear it. And the Spirit of God carries the words of the gospel into their very heart and soul. He will actualize, he will realize salvation in that one. But he has ordained, he has promised to do so only through the preaching of the gospel through his people. So you have to go out, you have to preach, you have to proclaim the gospel. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, so happy and humbled that you would use even ones such as we are. God, that you would grace us with the opportunity, with the blessed opportunity to be used by you to proclaim your gospel to be involved in the process by which your kingdom is spread across this globe and others are brought to saving faith in Christ Lord, may these words by your servant to your people echo in our minds, in our hearts, and in our bodies throughout the rest of this week. Guide us, Lord. By your spirit, lead us to every 
gospel encounter that you have for us. Give us boldness and clarity when we preach your word, when we proclaim it to others, when we speak it in conversation. We are relying on your spirit to give us the words that you have for us. Bless this people, Lord. Thank you for bringing us together today. Be with us as we leave this place. May we not cease to be the church simply because we have ceased to gather. Lord, may we continue to live and to speak the church as we leave here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.